you guys want to turn your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be continuing our uh, study through the book of 1 Peter. We're walking uh, since September, August time frame, and we're only in chapter 3. So uh, we've got a couple more chapters to go, but the Lord has been faithful. So tonight we're going to look at the next five verses. Uh, in verses 13 uh, through verse 17. And my goal is simply to break down these verses for you guys a phrase at a time. And then we're going to focus in on some application and some exhortation uh, towards the end of our time together. Uh, <clears throat> if you haven't already, turn with me to First Peter 3, beginning in verse 13. We read, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to come together as a body of Christ, members of the body, to open up your word. Lord, we're asking for you to show us your glory. As we just sang, glory, glory, hallelujah, Lord, we pray. Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, would you open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, would you not only open our eyes, but would you give us understanding, Lord, that we would be able to live according to your word. Lord, help us to see that you are good and that you do good. Lord, help us to trust your word tonight. Help us to look in your word deeply. Lord, I'm reminded of James and what he says of the man who looks at his self in the mirror, the mirror of the word of God, yet turns away as if he didn't see what was in the mirror. Lord, let that not be said of us tonight. Help us to look in the law of your word and to turn in repentance through faith. Help us to grow in grace tonight. Lord, sanctify our hearts. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give a quick recap for what we've been going through the last few months. Uh, Really, the last seven or eight weeks, we've been looking at... uh, the midway of chapter 2, and working through uh, where we're at tonight, but we talked a lot about submission. We looked at these different forms, these uh, different examples that Peter has given us in the forms of citizens submitting to government institutions. We saw uh, the example given of servants to slaves. He gave us the example of wives and husbands in these different relationships, And then he transitioned into uh, really this next part of the letter, which is what we've been uh, working at the past two weeks. And beginning in verse 8, he transitions now into a time of encouragement. He wants to now uh, encourage these different people, these citizens, these slaves, these mothers, these uh, wives, these husbands, all these different people. He wants to give them uh, an encouragement. Excuse me. And in verse 8, we looked at five different things. We looked at... 
uh, a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And we, we looked at these things as looking at a hand and seeing how they all work together as a hand and, and the one function of a palm, and the palm being the grace of Christ. So we see that in verse 8. And then last week, Chase worked through verses 9 through 12, looking about how that looks like in the life of the believer. And, and Peter uh, referenced Psalm 34, and he spoke about what it means for uh, the believer to desire life and to love the days by seeking to not revile or to do evil, but rather to seek peace and to pursue that. And then closing, uh, Chase left us off in verse 12. Uh, in verse 12, I'm just going to read it because it's important for us to uh, start where we start off in verse 13. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer or their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So that's kind of where we're at right now. And, and the big theme that um, Peter wants to address is how are we to respond? How are we to act uh, now in this suffering as Christians? How are we to respond in this suffering? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And <clears throat> looking at verse 13, we pick up, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So Peter begins verse 13, picking up where he left off in the previous verses in 8 through 12, as he shared uh, the promise that God will uh, turn his face away from those who do evil, from the evildoers. He says uh, that he will turn his face from them and then he also uh, talks about how we, as Christians, are to properly respond in light of this. We are to bless. We are, are to bless. You can see that in verse 9. And he begins now in verse 13. He, he starts with the word now. And it's important to look at this word because he is saying it as a therefore or because of what Peter just spoke to us in verses 8 through 12 who can harm us? In light of these things, who can harm us? And it's a rhetorical question that Peter's asking. The answer is clearly who? No one. No one can harm you if you are in Christ. We see evidence of this confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, and it's similarly shown in a rhetorical question with Paul, where he shares uh, this to the church in Rome in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. In chapter 8, we see Paul concluding a long chapter about uh, life in the Spirit. He talks about the love of God. He talks about suffering in light of this future glory. And then at the end of, of chapter 8, we see verse 31. In verse 31 of chapter 8 in the book of Romans, we read, What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say? Or what should be our response? And he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, who can separate us from Christ? And the answer is the same. No one, no one, no thing, no person, no form of suffering, whether verbal or physical, can ever separate us from Christ. Paul, likewise, as I mentioned before, is giving a rhetorical question here. And uh, we see the answer in our text in verse, uh, verse 9, or rather, I'm sorry, verse uh, 12. And the, the promise is that the evildoers evil ultimately do not have the last say. God does. God is the judge. He is the ruler. He has the authority over all. And he says he will repay. He will repay. It's not for us to repay evil for evil, but it is up to 
God. And, he, and Peter shared with us that early on in, in chapter 2 of this letter. And this promise is also important to note that it's not an earthly blessing in the sense of materialistic gain or wealth or prosperity, but it's one of eternal value. Uh, it's an eternal reward. And it's as God, who is judge, will take vengeance on the unfaithful. He will take vengeance on behalf of the Christians, and he will protect them. He will protect the righteous from harm. Harm that the evildoers will experience in the day of judgment from God. And one important thing to note in verse 13 is this phrase, if you are zealous for what is good. When Peter uses the word zealous, he is, not talking about, he is talking about a consistent, godly lifestyle. When he talks about being zealous for what is good, he's saying to be zealous or to be excited to living a godly lifestyle. A lifestyle that is going to endure through suffering. This is a lifestyle that a Christian will face, whether it includes suffering in forms of unjust suffering or whether it includes uh, forms of suffering that is just. So now look with me uh, to the next verse in verse 14. We look at the next phrase. We read, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. As I mentioned earlier, Peter is continuing this word of encouragement. And it is to the believer who is experiencing suffering. He wants them to see that it is a blessing that the, from the Lord for them to suffer. It's a blessing for them to suffer for righteousness. And in verse 14 can be understood a little, little better if we uh, switch one of the words, if we switch the word but. If we translate it, uh, it can be better translated with the word indeed. Indeed. So if you switch the word but in the beginning of chapter or verse 14 to indeed, we read, Indeed, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter is seeking to clarify what he meant in the previous verse. He doesn't want to contradict the claim that Christians will not face suffering, but rather he wants to affirm it. They will face suffering. It's not a if you will, but it's you will. Indeed, you will experience this. So here's why I want to encourage you. He wrote that, uh, I mean, we can see that clearly in the, in the larger text of the letter as he's writing to suffering Christians. So that would contradict himself in the, in, in the bigger scheme of things as well. So Peter absolutely affirms that Christians will most assuredly suffer. Now, Peter is, Peter is speaking in light of uh, the suffering in the form of a blessing. Uh, and it's, it's a blessing uh, and you might ask, well, what does it mean that you will be blessed? Or uh, is it a future blessing? Is it a blessing for here, right now, or maybe even both? And those are good and fair questions. And Peter is clearly saying that those who suffer for righteousness' sake will indeed be blessed. They will be blessed if they have a zeal for the good works or for righteous living. This word blessed is translated to divine favor or divine approval. Uh, a biblical scholar summarizes it by seeing the smile of God. Seeing the smile of God. In fact, it's the same word, the same word blessed, is the same word that is used in the beginning of each of the Beatitudes. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This aspect of divine favor, this aspect of the smile of God is on this suffering brother or sister in Christ. This is your current state. This is your identity. 
Now, Peter is not talking about the suffering itself is a blessing, but he's saying that it is a blessing to suffer for righteousness. It's a blessing to suffer for righteousness. The Christian is uh, blessed both now and will be rewarded in eternity. He's blessed now because he gets to experience God's protection. He gets to experience God's grace and God's favor as he is being or she is being persecuted. And they will be rewarded in the future, in eternity, both primarily by being relieved of this suffering. They will have no more pain. They'll have no more death. They will have no more crime. We can get that uh, easily visualized in, in Revelation. And not only that, they get to spend eternity with Christ is the greatest reward, that we get to go to heaven and Jesus will be with us. So another important thing to note that's worth uh, a quick time is the word suffer. The word suffer here in verse 14, uh, as Peter clearly discussed, is something that the Christians will face. Uh, but a better way to understand this, uh, you might sit there and say, okay, well, I'm a Christian and I don't really experience suffering. So how, how, does, this, how does this affect me or how, how can I look at that in, in, in this light? Well, it most uh, it does affect you, and, and the suffering isn't that it's going to happen to you 24-7. It's not that you're always going to experience this suffering suffering uh, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, but rather it's the constant threat. It's the constant threat that you will experience suffering, especially in light of your zealous, uh, your zeal for good works. And primarily, as Chase defined earlier on, it's the temptation to sin. A constant thing that we have, regardless if you're a Christian in America or you're a brother or sister in China, is you're always going to have that threat or that temptation in your life to sin. And that's one of the greatest forms, if not the greatest form, of suffering that we can face as Christians. So Peter is now going to explain explain two conclusions. And the conclusions are based on this fact of blessing, this blessing from God. And uh, the focus is not on suffering. The focus is on Christ. So he's not talking about focusing on your suffering and how you can receive the blessing, but it's the focus that you receive from Christ. And the first one is found in our next phrase, but it has two parts to it. So the first conclusion has part A and part B, and then the second conclusion is all by itself. So if you're taking notes, it might sound uh, a little unclear, so I just want to make that note ahead of time. Okay, so the first uh, observation, the first conclusion that Peter makes is in verse 14 that we can continue to go along. He says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. So the first part of the conclusion is to not have fear or to not be afraid of them. Who is the them that Peter is talking about? Well, he's talking about those who are going to persecute, those who are going to harm you, those who are probably unbelievers. And he's saying don't be afraid or don't fear them or what they can do to you. Uh, It is believed that Peter is citing uh, from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, And biblical scholars believe that either uh, Peter is giving a a reshaped version of this or even a a quotation from his own memory. Uh, And this is an important text uh, to Peter, it seems, because he quoted from Isaiah chapter 8 earlier on in in 1 Peter chapter 2. So when he talked about uh, the stumbling block of offense, that Christ is the living stone that they will reject. So Peter must have uh, spent some time in Isaiah chapter 8 
or he had it memorized of some sort or whatever, because he continues to quote from it throughout the letter. But what's important to note is this citation from Isaiah chapter 8, and it's the context in which we see Isaiah uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8 in the Old Testament. So uh, it's worth noting, uh, so the southern kingdom of Judah was threatened by the northern kingdom in Israel and Aram. The, the two countries wanted to remove King Ahaz from the throne and the current king of Judah. He was the current king of Judah. They wanted to replace him with another king. So King Ahaz and Judah were scared because of this news. And the prophet Isaiah came and he promised them that the Lord will keep them, that the Lord would keep Judah, and that Israel and Aram would be taken out by Syria. The Lord promised to provide a sign to demonstrate his word and his faithfulness. Judah and King Ahaz were called to respond by trusting the Lord, trusting his promise. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15, the Lord commands his people not to fear the plots of Israel and Aram. They were to fear Yahweh and him alone. They were to put their trust in him. He warned them. He warned the first who would trust him that he would be their comfort, that he would be their sanctuary. And then he warned those who did not trust him. And he said that they would most uh, assuredly stumble and that they would fall and that they would ultimately be broken. So Peter uses this story and he shares it with the readers of God's faithfulness. He shows that God's people were tempted to fear those who were causing the suffering, like we see in Isaiah chapter 8. But they were liable to fear, in First Peter, the evildoers. So we see in Isaiah 8 how the people were tempted to fear uh, the, southern, the northern kingdom. And then now we see, likewise, in First Peter, people were liable to fear those who were going to cause them harm. But Peter is aware of this, and he urges them to trust the Lord instead, to trust Yahweh and to believe that God would keep his word and ultimately vindicate them in due time. Now, the second part, or part B, of the conclusion is to not be troubled, or nor be troubled. Some of your Bibles might translate this to, do not be frightened. The word troubled is translated to shaken up or disturbed, and is often used in the sense of emotional well-being. So they're often shaken up in an emotional Sense. Peter is emphasizing this fear of God over fear of man. Uh, this goes back to what Peter has said earlier. We need not, fan, need not fear man ultimately because God is in control. They can't harm us, as he said earlier on in verse 13. And the writer of Hebrews makes a similar point in Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 5 and 6, where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? It's almost saying identically what Peter is saying in verse 13 and what we saw earlier in Romans uh, chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God is, is the ultimate. God is in control, and we can rest in this suffering, knowing that our suffering will not go unnoticed, nor will it go unpunished. Jesus also said this most plainly in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where he said, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but not kill the soul. 
Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So we can see in this instance, Jesus is saying, don't fear them, the evildoers, who are going to persecute you, who are going to forsake you, who are going to leave you, but rather, trust me, the one who's not going to forsake you. Trust Yahweh, who will protect you, who will uh, comfort you. He will get you through this suffering. And don't forget, I can destroy body and soul. The only thing that they can do is destroy your body. So let that be a warning, but also let that be an encouragement. We are to fear God, not anything man can do to us here in this life. We must not fear because we must fear um, God and not man because we have peace with God. He will not, he will go before us and he will fight for us. We must trust and obey that he will do as he said he will do. Like the refrain of the great old hymn, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I believe Peter would have liked that hymn, Trust and Obey. So moving now to verse 15, he's continuing this sentence. He says, uh, and we also find our second conclusion. So if you're taking notes, part A, B is the first one. Now we're moving to to the second conclusion. We see in verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the first conclusion was a, a, a negative in the sense of do not do this. Do not fear or refrain from fear. And the second one we see is a more positive side. We see um, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy which we just read in the beginning of verse 15. He reminds his reader that their allegiance is to God. It is not to man. It is to honor Christ as Lord, as their master. Christians are not to fear, Christians are to fear in a positive manner, in the sense of reverence. To have God's name different than any other name. It is to be held in higher honor than any other name. So much so that part, Peter says, You are to regard it in your heart. You are to honor Christ the Lord as holy. So uh, if you're you're tracking, uh, well, how can you make God's name holy? Is Peter saying you need to make God's name more holy? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying to make it holy in the sense to make it set apart. Make it set apart from any other names. uh, Believers are to honor Christ in his lordship as uh, they honor his name throughout their lives. They are honoring his lordship and honoring his name, his distinct name, God, Yahweh, Lord of all, capital L, right? Peter is also addressing them with this Old Testament text, saying Yahweh as Lord is the same in the New Testament as Jesus Christ is Lord. He's saying it is the same Lord Peter is not stressing the fact that Jesus is Lord. He is, most of, he is Lord, but he's not stressing that. He is saying that believers should set his name apart as Lord. There's a difference. Peter tells them to set his name apart in their hearts. The heart here is not for referring to the inner being in the sense that you should be private in speaking, uh, but rather you should be outward in reflecting this in the way you live. Your actions will most assuredly overflow with what dwells inside of your heart. 
And this is consistent with the teaching of Jesus as he rebuked the Pharisees about their outward signs, their outward religious and ma- religion in Matthew chapter 15. He talks about, he tells them, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but rather what comes out. And, and he goes on and he uses these different uh, examples, but ultimately at the end he, he tells the Pharisees that they're just like a, a whitewashed tomb. They're nice and elegant and whitewashed on the outside. They look put together with their outward sign of religion, but inside they're dead. They're decaying. They're like an inside of a tomb. Therefore, setting apart Christ's name as Lord in your heart is not something you do in private, but it is something that you outwardly do, so much so that is evident to those around you by your zeal for good works and often leads to suffering. It's like what John said in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that Christ has laid down his life for the brothers. And then he goes on in verse 17 and talks about, If you see a worldly need in your brother, yet close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? He says, Do not love merely by words and words and talk, but he says, Love in deed and in truth. And the, the, the point John is making is, to love through action. How, how do you do this? Well, look what he said in verse 16. By this we know love, that Christ has laid down his life for the brothers. Jesus, at the Last Supper, didn't just say, I love you, John. I love you, Peter. I love you, Thomas. But no, he actually backed it up by going to the cross. He actually backed it up by actually physically doing what he said he was going to do. And that's our example, how we are to revere Christ's name and regard it as holy. We aren't just to say, Lord, we love you. Lord, you are Lord. Lord, you are master. No, but our word is nothing. Our talk is cheap if our actions are not following up what is coming out of our mouths. So now moving on to the next phrase, the next part. We read, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So here we see Peter is talking about making a defense or making a defense for the hope that is in you. But before we talk about that, Peter mentions this aspect of being prepared, and it's pretty important. Preparation for the defense naturally comes before giving a defense. So this preparation is continuing in what Peter just said in the earlier part of verse 15, and that we are to honor Christ through our lives as regarding him as Lord in our hearts. This living is our preparation. This living of righteousness, this abiding in the word, this killing of sin, this enduring through suffering, this bearing witness, this praying, this pray life, that your prayer life, meeting together as a body, loving the brothers, growing with God, communing with God, etc. All these things are your preparation. All these things are for you in order to make a proper defense. And this overall preparation is speaking to the essentials of the Christian faith. So how are we to go about preparing? Well, we are to go about preparing by living out our lives, living out the Christian essentials of our faith. We must be a people who are prepared when the opportunity comes to make a defense. This is what Peter is getting at. He's saying you must be prepared. If we are not prepared, we will either miss the opportunity or when, we would, when the opportunity comes, we will try 
without being prepared, and we will stumble, and we'll be unfaithful in making our defense. So I want you to think of it about a lawyer. So look at, think about a lawyer. So what does a lawyer have to do in order to become a lawyer? Well, first he has to go through a lot of schooling, right? He has to go through a lot of preparation. He needs to go through his undergrad. He needs to go to law school. And that's before he even gets a a case. That's before he gets to make a defense on someone's behalf. He has to go through years and years and years upon schooling to get this education. But it doesn't stop there. What happens next? He has to get certified. He has to be uh, uh, certified to be able, to be equipped, to be prepared to give a defense on someone's behalf. So he's just spent years and years, or she's just spent years and years working her tail off or working his tail off to get in this state. They've done their schooling. Now they've passed the certification. Okay, what happens next? Now they have to get into a firm or they have to uh, get a case, right? Okay, so now they have a case. Well, now the preparation is done, right? No, the preparation is not done. Now they have to know the case. They have to know the individual. They have to know what has happened, whether it's a crime or, or they have to meet with the people. They have to do everything to be prepared in order to meet the defense when they go into the courtroom, right? So fast forward. They're now into the courtroom. They are, have done a bunch to be prepared in order to make the defense on behalf of that person. Okay, so you have that lawyer right here. We're going to put him over here. So now put over here the lawyer who struggles through law school. They go, they, they, they skim by, they get there, right? Fast forward to all the stuff I just talked about. Now you're a lawyer, you get a case. This court date comes up, it's uh, two years away. You don't do anything. You meet with your, your person one time. You don't look at the files. You do nothing to be prepared. The court date comes, and you're ready to give your defense. The judge comes in. They say, Herb, are you ready to make your defense? What is that lawyer going to look like? What are they going to say on behalf of that person? So there's two different people here. You have the, the lawyer over here who is prepared, who has studied, who has labored, who has lived, who has sought the individual who they're representing to make a defense. And then over here, you have the one who has been lazy, who has just coasted by, who has really known nothing about the individual. So this is this aspect of preparing. We ought not be the lawyer over here who is not prepared. We must be people like the lawyer over here who is prepared in every way. So if you're understanding the illustration, we are the people who are preparing by communing with God before the opportunity presents itself for us to make a defense on God's behalf to share the hope that is in us. Are we tracking? Are we tracking? So the lawyer must be prepared to come into the courtroom to make an effective uh, defense on behalf of the witness. We must be like this prepared lawyer. This preparation is in order that us as believers are equipped. We're equipped to make a defense. The the word defense is translated to apologia, and it's where we get our English word apology or apologize. Uh, It means to give an answer. Uh, This answer is for those who are seeking, who are questioning you about your Christian life. We are prepared so that we may win the loss. That's our ultimate goal. 
That's why we're here. At Matthew, at the end of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, gives us a great commission, right? If, if we were just here, um, once we're saved and we had no reason to live and there was no purpose for us to live, God would have zapped us up, right? He has us here for a purpose, and our purpose is to ultimately be ambassadors on his behalf. But Peter is, is, is talking about winning the lost, right? Peter is implying that Christians are an intellectual group of people. Now, he's talking about the essentials, remember, of the Christian faith. He thinks that they are able to grasp them enough to know them, to defend them, to give an answer in the public arena. We also get this word apologetics from this word apologia. But Peter is not saying that everybody needs to be so skilled like a high-level evangelist in order to give an answer. No, but he is saying we must know the essentials of what we believe and why we believe it. He is saying, brother or sister, you must know your faith. You must know your faith. Peter tactfully uses this word uh, of hope in the latter part of the verse. We as Christians are giving a defense of the hope that is in us, not of the faith that is in us. He's giving the hope that is in us. We as Christians uh, are giving this hope. The reason is unbelievers will see this hope that we have in God rather than earthly circumstances leading to a prompting of why. Why are they acting like this when they are enduring such difficult times, when they're enduring such different persecutions? They will see how differently we respond in the face of suffering. They will see how individualistic we respond. This is something that each and every one of us of the household of faith must be able to do. We must be able to each give an answer for the hope that is in us. Just like we discussed earlier in, in, the verse, in, chapter, or in verse 15 about flowing from the heart. Right, This inner is not separated from the outer action. This inner has a great weight on the outward response. It's no different here in making a defense. Whatever is going inside of your heart will manifest in outward acts. So if you're preparing yourself, seeking the hidden beauty of the heart, it will naturally come out as you are equipped when the opportunities come up to make your defense. This hope is so that people become so distinctly different, Christians are so distinctly different, that the unbeliever would respond, that they would respond saying, what in the world is different about you? Why? Why? Remember, our goal is to seek and to save the lost. Now, toward the end of this verse, Peter inserts how we are to do this, or rather, uh, in what manner we are to do this. And he says it with two words. He says gentleness and respect. Now, the easy and more tempting way for us as Christians are to... Respond in a hostile war, world in what way? By uh, making a defense in the sense that we attack. We, we don't make a defense for the hope in the, uh, in the sense of making a defense for the hope that is in us, but what we like to do is to attack when opposition comes, right? That's our natural response is to, to go in an attack mode. So Peter is keenly aware of this, so he reminds his readers how they are to respond. They are not to respond with swords, they are to respond with gentleness and with respect. So firstly, he says gentleness or uh, meekness. This word is most clearly shown in the life of Christ. We see this endlessly, how he deals constantly with the poor, with the destitute, constantly throughout the gospel narratives, whether it's uh, healing a poor man, whether it's raising a dead girl, 
a little, dead little girl from the dead, or even rebuking the Pharisees. In every other way, we see this example of meekness constantly in the life of Christ. He did so with meekness. Now, meekness is a term uh, that's pretty interestingly defined. It's, it's gentleness. We, tr- we, kind of, we tend to, to use the word interchangeably, but uh, that's not what the Bible's talking about. Meekness is unique. Meekness is gentleness, or it's humility, or it's tenderness, or mildness displayed with self-control. That, that aspect of self-control is important, and it's, and it's spoken, and it's easily seen with Christ. So think about the Pharisees, how he rebuked the Pharisees. He rebuked them with authority, right? He uh, rebuked them with tact, yet he did it with gentleness. He did it with meekness. He did it with self-control. This, this aspect of speaking to someone with such authority, with such power, you would think it would come down with a big hammer or with a rod. No, that's not what Jesus does. He comes in. He's tactful. He knows who he's, he's, he's talking to. He knows their thoughts. He knows their heart. He knows how they're going to respond. Yet he deals with them with self-control and with grace and with tact. Now, the second word Peter says is respect. He's saying we're supposed to make this defense with gentleness and with respect. A better translation of this word respect is reverence. So if you think about respect, it could, you could think it's Peter's talking about giving the defense on behalf of the unbeliever. Now, that is true, but he's talking in reverence in the sense that you are able to do this because of your fear to God. You're able to do this horizontal thing in talking to other people because of your fear and your reverence that has been directly in relation to God. Peter has probably in mind that gentleness towards other through the fear of God. You can be gentle through your fear to God. He similarly says this to the wives in uh, chapter 3 when he says, be respectful towards your husbands. It's to revere them. You can, you can be respectful because of your fear. Now, Peter is making the emphasis that believers are now able to respond to unbelievers in this manner of gentleness because of their fear towards God. They are now able to express this Christ-like self-control and not lash out to their persecutors. That's the point in what Jesus is trying to make. Now, we're transitioning down to the latter part of verse uh, 15, where he concludes his sentence with, "...having a good conscience..." So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, this verse is also a continuation. Paul is just continuing to flow the thought, building off verse and verse and phrase by phrase. Now, he's talking about this relationship with God, which we just talked about, this fear, this reverence of God. At the beginning of the verse 16, uh, we see Peter talk about having a good conscience. Now, some of your translations may say keeping a clear conscience. This is another aspect that Peter is addressing as believers are to have this awareness of a good conscience in order to, in order to make a proper defense. Peter is speaking of having a good, confi- good conscience before God. Peter says that we are able to have a good conscience so that those who revile us will be put to shame. They will be repaid on the last day. This also shows that the main form of persecution is social persecution. The, the main persecution, especially in light of these times, it, it can be argued either way, but 
especially here in this verse specifically, is social persecution, what, what Peter is talking about. And we can see this by the words that he's talking about. He's saying we are to have a good conscience with God so when they revile us, right, or they will um, be maligned or when you're slandered, that's another word for slander, to be maligned. These are talking about words here, right? So Peter is talking that we are to be persecuted for our good behavior. So transitioning now to this good behavior. They are to live distinctly different lives. Christians are to live distinctly different lives as they regard God as holy. They are to live as he is holy, which is what he talked about earlier on in chapter 1. So that means that if we are living in a good manner, the persecution that we receive will ultimately lead to shame on the persecutor's end. Are you following? So when we're living with good behavior or we're living righteous or holy lives and are persecuted for that reason, the persecutor will ultimately be repaid by God. And Peter is urging his, his readers to continue to persevere. He's encouraging them to live these godly lives so that in the end, those who reject Christ would see that they've been mistaken all along. Peter addresses something similar earlier on in his letter as he says that we are to live in such a way that the hope in us may win others through our good conduct. Through our good conduct. That's the ultimate hope. Peter's saying this theme as he continues to transition in the following verse, in verse 17. Some believers, some unbelievers will respond in faith. Other unbelievers' hearts will be hardened and will turn, will not turn to Christ in the end. So we have a promise here that some will turn because of our good conduct, but we also see that some will not turn because they will be put to shame. So we get both ends of the promise. We can use our good conduct in a way to be a witness and hope that some will turn, but also see that vengeance will be repaid in the end by God. So now we're going to look at our final verse for tonight. In verse 17 we read, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter finishes off this section with an important warning for us. He talks about suffering for doing good, rather suffering for evil. He says it's better to suffer for doing good and experience unjust suffering than it is for a believer to experience suffering for evil behavior or sinful behavior. Logically, this makes sense entirely. Keep in mind, the hope is that you may win some. So in light of that, if a Christian were to suffer for doing evil, how might that affect his or her witness? Right? How, how would that affect your defense in making the gospel known and, and this defense for the hope that is in you? It most certainly will weaken it, Right, Or it would absolutely hurt it. They would see you as a fraud or even a hypocrite. We are to have the good conscience, remember. A good conscience in that we are living godly lives, keeping in step with repentance. That we are having a good conscience before God. It is also important to quickly note the fact that Peter says that suffering is attributed to the will of God. And first, uh, in the first chapter of Philippians in verse 29, it says, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name's sake. So, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he says, It has been granted to you. It has been blessed 
to us that we should not only believe, but we should also suffer for the name of Christ. It's a blessing to suffer for the name of Christ. What Peter is saying is that he doesn't know the extent of every suffering for every believer, but he does know suffering for believers is the will of God. If you think this isn't true, I would strongly, strongly encourage you to pause, go, and read the stories of the Gospels or in other areas in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, where we clearly see Jesus, our Messiah, being brutally tortured, being experienced the greatest form of unjust suffering. And he didn't just do it to do it. He suffered for you. Don't, do we really think, do we really think that we would be exempt of suffering when we're supposed to imitate Christ and ultimately his life ended with the greatest form of unjust suffering? Do we really think that we would be exempt from that? Our Savior has suffered in the greatest form. And it wasn't that his earthly body was crucified. It wasn't that it was torn to shreds. It wasn't that it was chastised. It wasn't that it was ripped off to the, the bones were being shown. That, that wasn't the greatest form. It was the form that he drank, the full cup of God's wrath on your behalf. He did not leave one drop in the cup. He drank it in full. He drank every last drop. So we should be thankful, thinking about the suffering that we experience doesn't compare to what Christ suffered for us on the cross. We will suffer. We will suffer in many forms. Yet Jesus helps us endure through the suffering each and every time. That is the great hope. That is the great promise. And Peter wants to emphasize that. He wants to emphasize that in all this big scheme, God is in control. He is sovereign. He is ruler. He is seeing each and everything that's going on. We can see this in two quick examples in the life of Job and the life of Paul. Now, post uh, being saved for Paul, we see a bunch of imprisonments. We see shipwrecks. We see him getting uh, stoned to death. We see him receiving the lashes 39 times. We see all sorts of suffering physically for Paul. So much so, in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, he thought he received the sentence of death, yet it was because of Christ that allowed this so that he could rely not on himself, but that he could rely on God. And in the Old Testament example of Job, he had everything. He had everything. He was stripped down. He lost his family. His wife turned on him. In in every way, his friends, right? The whole book of Job is about his friends, that are, that are turning on him. And you can see how God even allowed Satan to come in and to strip Job under the power of God, under the authority of God and his sovereignty to ultimately get Job, to get Paul, to get you, to get me closer in communion to God. God has uniquely in his infinite wisdom created suffering or has allowed suffering to be a means in which he grows closer to his people. He has used it in order to purify them of sin, to chastise those whom he loves so that they can grow in holiness with God. Now, I want to close our time together focusing on four quick exhortations that we can apply from our lives in these verses. I believe, based on what we have studied so far in this letter and what we looked at tonight, 
it is clear that the person who fears God walks in the ways of Christ. And I want to encourage you guys to do so in four ways. Number one, honor Christ in your hearts as holy. Honor Christ in your hearts as holy. And Peter gave us the greatest example of doing this by seeking the inward beauty of the heart. Not seeking the things that are external, but this Colossians 3 lifestyle of seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Number two, always be prepared. Like we talked extensively about the lawyer or an athlete even who prepares himself before a game. We too must be always prepared to give an answer. Number three, we must be prepared to make a defense with gentleness and respect. That example I I showed of Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, we must continue to live righteous lives in order to make a defense with gentleness and respect, this aspect of continually growing in the fruit of the Spirit, growing in meekness with self-control. And finally, number four, see suffering as a divine favor from God. See your suffering as a divine favor, a blessing from God. It is a witness that God has uniquely designed for us to endure suffering so that we can ultimately witness to those who don't know him. It is the smile of God on you. It is a blessing coming down from the Lord. So as we close our time together tonight, I want to leave you with a few words from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 10:28. It's the great warning and great encouragement that we see in Matthew ten twenty eight. we see, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, fear God. He will vindicate the evildoers. Let us pray. Father God, we do believe as you have said in your word, that every time we open up your word, it's not in vain. It will be grown, the seed that has been planted. Lord, I pray that you would strip anything from the hearers that was just of me, that was not of you. I pray, Lord, that the seed that has been planted would not be snatched by the evil one. I pray that it would not be choked out by the cares of this world. And I pray, Lord, that it would not fall on hard soil on rocky ground. Lord, I pray that it would fall on fertile soil. I pray that it would be watered. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give growth. Lord, have your way in your word tonight and do a work in the people's hearts. I pray and ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.